Well, uh, I thought, um, uh, and also the su- suggestion of some um, of the people who have been coming along to these uh, evenings and uh, retreats we've been doing for the last few years, that uh, it was suggested that we might um, put uh, a bit more attention onto the uh, essential or um, more um, uh, classical teachings of the Buddha, and so I thought this was a, a very good idea. Um, one of the, the uh, um, when thinking about this, the obvious place to uh, to start is with the, the Buddha's first teaching, because uh, one of the strange things about um, the Buddha's teaching is that that uh, he pretty much uh, summed up the whole thing in his entire lifetime's message. He uh, he actually encapsulated within his within the first talk that he gave and then the rest of the 45 years was a, a kind of elaboration on that or just um, reiterating the same basic themes uh, over and over again in a different formats but basically the same essential message and um, so that uh, I thought that I might go over that first um, the first discourse of the Buddha the first teaching that he gave which is um, Oftentimes, uh, this teaching, which is known as the, the Four Noble Truths, is, known, uh, is looked upon as being the kind of basic uh, beginner's Buddhism. This is sort of chapter one, page one, um, kindergarten Buddhism. And then, you, you know, you, this is pretty tame, boring stuff. And then you skip over this and you get into the really interesting stuff later on. You know, kind of the well-thumbed pages are the ones further towards the back of the book. And... And the Four Noble Truths are always regarded as uh, the sort of uh, nursery slopes, you know, beginners, beginners Buddhism. But uh, it's one of those strange, uh, strange phenomena that even though it's ex- incredibly simple, it's also extraordinarily profound. Just like the uh, uh, you know, ordinary matter, just like a, 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 molecule, a molecule or an atom. Uh, or an electron, it seems like a, a very simple and plain thing, but when you start to, to look into it, you realize this thing is, uh, is a very mysterious and profound, and um, there's a great deal to it. Actually, um, it's, uh, even though this is described as being the first teaching of the Buddha, um, after his enlightenment, it wasn't actually the first, uh, the first teaching as such. Um, what had, uh, just to give a little bit of historical background to this, uh, to this talk, um, the Buddha had been practicing as a very vigorous ascetic. He had been living amongst uh, various different groups of uh, um, uh, yogis in his part of India, in the, Ga- in the uh, Ganges Valley in northern India. And uh, he was a very uh, tough warrior type and uh, given to doing everything in a, in a very um, complete and extreme way and so when he became an ascetic he was, a, he was the most fierce and austere of, of the whole group and so um, he'd been practicing this way for about uh, six years and uh, finally he'd had the, um, the insight that uh, even though he'd taken himself to the edge of death and extreme physical exhaustion and pain and, and uh, deprivation that um, this in itself was not actually liberating. He realized that he, he was able to endure as much pain as a human body, a human mind could, could take. But this was, 
this was not liberating his mind. It showed toughness and resilience, but uh, he realized he still wasn't free. And then he had the insight uh, to, uh, the, he, into the fact that he was just being too harsh and that um, if his body didn't regain a bit of strength, then he would never be able to achieve anything. He was dazed and, and uh, swooning and, um, and uh, only half alive. So he um, took the drastic measure of, uh, of uh, eating some ordinary food. It actually says he was given some milk rice, which um, I, in my, my mod, modern day comparison for, for amongst the ascetics in India at that time, it's probably like going down to um, a... Uh, some kind of very grand uh, pizza parlor, and uh, you know, o- uh, ordering you know, three of the of the largest and most exotic, uh, highly flavoured uh, delights of the place, and scoffing them all down in one shot. And uh, so anyway, the, the Buddha was given some some of this milk rice, and um, when he, the companions that he was with, the five ascetics that were he were his disciples and who were living with him, when they saw this, they were totally disgusted and appalled, and uh, the fact that he would eat ordinary rice. And, um, and so they, uh, they left him uh, and uh, went off on their own. And um, shortly after that time, then when he was left to his own devices, and he went to, um, to Bodh Gaya and meditated on his own, and that's when he became enlightened. So after his enlightenment, then he, uh, he was considering, well, who in the world will be able to understand? First of all, he thought that in the enlightenment, the experience he'd had was so profound he wouldn't be able to explain it to anyone and, and uh, so his first inclination was not to bother teaching at all. And then he was moved by a sense of compassion and concern for other beings in the world and thought, well, maybe there's a few that might be able to understand this. Um, you know, it's taken me long enough and I've worked hard enough to find it. There must be a few others who have just a little bit of dust in their eyes who will be able to, to see, the, see this truth also. And he thought of uh, the, the teachers he'd had previously and, and realized that they had recently passed away. And then he thought of these five disciples. And so he thought, oh yes, well, they were, they were pretty keen characters. They, they, were, they were very um, dedicated and, and uh, we were very much of one mind. So maybe I should go back and find them and see if uh, that, uh, they can understand it. So then he made his way back from Bodh Gaya to Benares where these five disciples were staying. And on the road, uh, he met uh, another wandering ascetic. And this was really his first discourse, his first um, exposition um, was to this other ascetic who was called Upaka. And when Upaka saw the Buddha walking along uh, the road, he was very struck by the, the, the demeanor and um, radiance that this man had. He was just obviously looked, and he was very kind of tall and, and uh, handsome figure anyway. But since he was newly enlightened, he was obviously quite uh, luminous <laughs> into the bargain. And so that uh, Upaka was very struck by the appearance of this kind of enormous, um, very stately, uh, radiant-looking being and asked him, oh, uh, what, is it, uh, what is it that you have discovered? Obviously, you've had some you know, marvelous experience or some kind of great insight. You know, w- um, who is your teacher? What is it that you've understood? And so the Buddha then uh, says, well... Uh, I am the only uh, completely awakened being in the whole world and, and there is no one who is my teacher. There, there's no one. I, I've arrived at this uh, state of, of accomplishment by my own effort. There's no one in the world who is my equal, so there's no one I can call a teacher. 
And so Upaka is quite taken aback by this and says, well, um, so that y- you, know, you claim to be someone who is, is uh, totally enlightened. And the Buddha says, yes, indeed, I'm, I'm victorious over all the forces of delusion. And even though he was being quite straightforward and just giving him a, a, a very um, honest uh, resume of, uh, the, uh, of what was the, the state of affairs, and when he was talking about uh, himself, he wasn't speaking from an egotistical point of view, Upaka's response was, well, good for you, son, and, uh, and headed off by a different path, kind of shaking his head in, uh, in disbelief, thinking that the, the Buddha was uh, obviously taken a few too many mushrooms that morning and had, uh, <laughs> was just uh, overestimating uh, his uh, attainment. So the Buddha was very quick to learn and realized that giving people the straight scoop was not the way to, to get the message across. So he realized he had to be a bit, bit more... Um, diplomatic. And so when he got to, to meet up with the five disciples, originally when they, they saw him, they decided that since he, he'd uh, caved in and given up the, the true path, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't even bother res- uh, getting up for him or paying respects to him or anything, even though he'd been their leader before. But when he, um, when he appeared, they, they were unable to, to just ignore him, and they found themselves kind of leaping up and greeting him and, and making a seat ready for him and so forth. And then the Buddha said to, told them um, that uh, he had realized the truth, that he had attained the, the, the deathless state, he'd realized the ultimate reality. And the monk said, well, come on, it's ridiculous. I mean, you started eating ordinary food. I mean, you, you've, you've given up. You, 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 you left the, the spiritual path. How on earth could you possibly have attained anything? You know, you, you, um, you're, uh, you gave up the, um, the true... Uh, training the true practice and uh, the Buddha said well look I'm telling you um, <laughs> whether you believe it or not this is uh, I've, uh, I've realized uh, the truth the deathless state and so this exchange goes back and forth a few times and, um, on the third time round then the Buddha says look have I ever spoken to you like this before and they said no so he said well I tell you the tr- I have realized the truth. And if you want to, I can explain the way for you two to realize it also. And that um, in no short time, you're, you too can awaken to this truth. And so eventually they thought, well, okay. So they decided to listen. And then he began to explain his insight into, uh, first of all, into the middle way. What he called the, the middle way. He kind of scaled it down from rather than saying, I am the all-accomplished one. He said, okay, it's just, I've, uh, I've realized the middle way. <laughs> And so that then he, uh, he described what the middle way was in terms of um, the, uh, the path between the two extremes of, of seeking happiness through self-indulgence and seeking happiness through self-denial, self-mortification. And that the, the middle way, the middle path, was actually um, uh, the, uh, what's, what's later called the Eightfold Path, which I, I'll explain in detail later on. And then he, um, in order to, to, to further this or to better explain it, he then started to explain the, the Eightfold Path or the, the, um, the Middle Way in terms of his insight into what he then termed the Four Noble Truths. And this is the very core, the very essence, the very key to the, the, the Buddha's teaching. And this is what all the subsequent teachings revolved around. Now, the Four Noble Truths themselves are rather rather like a key, not very glorious in itself. Like a, a key is a very mundane thing. It's a kind of nondescript, not very glamorous. Um, 
doesn't uh, knock your eye out. But uh, if, it's the, if it's the right key for the right lock, and uh, you use it in the right way, then uh, the key gives you access to something valuable. It either lets you out, or it lets you in, or it lets you get your hands on, uh, on uh, the goodies of some sort. And so in the same way that the, the Four Noble Truths and the, the Buddha's insight into, into the truth that he cast in this form is, is very much like a key that opens the door to the very essence of the, the, um, the nectar of, of uh, all spiritual teachings. But the actual wording of the, of the truths themselves are, are, very, are very simple and straightforward. And the Buddha, in the same way as he was describing to Upaka, he's uh, also describing to his disciples what his experience of enlightenment was. And, it was, and uh, even though it was obviously the extremely blissful and powerful experience, um, what comes across, it was actually uh, something that was remarkably simple. It was like suddenly a pattern falling into place and a, and a profound feeling of, ah, look at that. How ridiculously simple, how absurdly simple the whole thing was. And this is uh, um, after not only this li single lifetime of the, of the Buddha and all the effort that he put in after giving up his, his kingdom and uh, struggling for six years as an ascetic. Um, if you like to believe the stories of the scriptures, this is on top of millions and millions of lifetimes of, uh, of development of the spiritual qualities of, of wisdom and kindness and... Uh, meditative states, um, uh, all the great spiritual powers of renunciation and, and uh, patience and so on. So at the end of this, this uh, what would be eons and eons and eons of, of development, there's this uh, excruciatingly uh, simple realization of, uh, of how the whole thing fits together, what uh, the key to the whole thing is. Now the... Um, it's interesting also to that the, the, the Buddha used the term noble truths, the four noble truths, that, uh, that these insights are not presented as being absolute truths, as like something which is the, the, the um, totally infallible words that you can trust completely as being the, the fixed, uh, fixed truth of, of life. But far more, um, the Buddha always left an absolute truth as something which, which could not be expressed in words. But the, the Four Noble Truths, they use the word noble more to refer to the fact that these are, are ideas, these are principles. And they, if they're acted upon, if they're used, they can lead us to, to that which is pure, or that which is noble, or that which is transcendent. But they're not, they're not kind of um, absolute realities in themselves. They're only words, they're only ideas, they're only... Uh, directions for us to take. So that's an important thing to, to recognize that in, in, uh, in the Buddhist tradition you don't have any kind of scriptural uh, words which are said to be this is the, the ultimate and absolute truth which, um, which should be believed. But it's much more it's conditional and um, cast in that form. Now the, uh, also, he, um, he presented the, the, these insights, or well, these insights took shape in his mind during the night of his enlightenment um, in the form of a, of a medical diagnosis in, the, in Ayurvedic medicine. They have um, this traditional form of, uh, of approaching a physical condition uh, is, uh, first of all, to identify the illness. 
the nature of the illness, and then to identify its cause, to then identify the prognosis, you know, is it curable or not, or what, what's likely to happen with this, and then, uh, and then lastly, the fourth thing is the method of cure. What's the medicine that, that can bring this about? And so these insights took shape in his mind uh, in, that, in that same pattern. And so that the, the disease he identified, so this is the basic problem, is what he called dukkha, or this is like a very ordinary word for, uh, for dissatisfaction, incompleteness, imperfection, pain, um, that which you don't want. I mean, it's basically that, those kind of qualities. It literally, it, it translates as meaning that which is hard to bear, that which is, is difficult to, to bear, that which is um, a struggle in life. And so he said, um, the, f- the initial insight is that there is this feeling of dukkha. This is a, a quality that we experience in life. And this is not just talking about anything grand. It doesn't mean to say you're being tortured by someone or that you have to be poverty-stricken or, hu- or, or starving or, or at death's door or diseased. But just there in, in the most refined and, and beautiful uh, forms of, of living as well, there is this quality of dissatisfaction that there is beautiful things that we have erode and fade away or uh, we lose them or we lose control of them or we're worried that we're going to lose control of them. Our, our youth escapes us. We're, our health is, is um, fragile. Our, um, our home needs to be protected. There's a, a sense of, of uncertainty and, uh, and a lack of control over the things that we, uh, that we own, the things around us, um, and, that, uh, and this sense of, of uh, dissatisfaction or, or um, um, fragility in life is always there in coarser or, um, or more refined forms. And the, so the Buddha pointed to that, first of all, or recognized that, that uh, until we're enlightened, until the mind is completely liberated, there's always these different shadows, different forms and textures of of dukkha, of, uh, of discord, dissatisfaction, disharmony. And um, you can also describe it in terms of, of alienation, a feeling of, of separateness, of somehow being apart from things, apart from other people, apart from the world, or, or apart from yourself. Like you, can, uh, you can feel that you're not quite with your life, or with your body, or, or uh, in touch with things. There's a sense of dissociation and, and fragmentation in your life. And so that he's, uh, he pointed this, uh, this as being the symptom or the, the, the disease of, that we experience as human beings. And that um, that, uh, that experience is, is all pervasive, that uh, all beings experience this, that everyone experiences this to a greater or lesser degree. And that, um, you know, this is... Uh, um, exemplified on the most obvious level of, uh, say, just physical pain, the pain of, of being born, the pain of, of growing up, of dealing with, with your childhood, dealing with uh, aging, dealing with sickness, uh, loss, uh, dealing with um, any kind of death experience, either the imminence of your own death, the, the reality of your own death, or the death of, of people around you, and in some ways, the, the, the quality of death itself exemplifies uh, and is a sort of emblematic of the, of the feeling of, of dukkha, of what we fear, what we don't want. 
And even though uh, for many people, uh, the, say the idea of death is not threatening, or people often say, well, I don't mind, the idea, I don't mind dying, it's just I don't want to do it. I want to do it without any pain. <laughs> I, don't, I don't fear death, but, uh, but uh, I just want to do it peacefully and quietly and with no mess. But uh, in, the, in a way, what we fear, um, or maybe what's more tangible in terms of, of, um, of death in this way, is more like the sort of e- you know, egoic death, like dying in public, like being totally embarrassed, in p- doing, uh, doing something which is, uh, which is utterly embarrassing, where you, you completely lose face in front of, uh, of everyone, or where you fail kind of publicly and, and grandly, where you, you, know, you fall apart, or or where you're criticized, or um, where um, you are um, in some way laid low in a, in a, kind of a public fashion, where your, your sense of self is thoroughly kind of bruised and, and, and damaged, where your self-esteem it take a, it takes a real clobbering. And that those kind of, of feelings of, of uh, say, social death or egoic death uh, are much more of everyday tangible things to us. They're exactly what we don't want to fail, to, um, to, to fall apart, to lose control, to, uh, um, to lose the, the uh, esteem of people around us. And um, in, a, in, a, in summary of, of those qualities, it's really just having to be with what you don't like or, or being separated from, from what you do like. Just not getting what you want in any way, however refined or coarse. This is kind of the, uh, the, um, the substance of this feeling of, of dukkha. And sometimes when people look at the Buddha's teachings and they, they see that the, the Buddha makes this emphasis on, on the realization or the, or the importance of dukkha or the recognition of this as the first noble truth, they look at Buddhism as being a, a fundamentally nihilistic philosophy. This is a real, you know, the Buddha was a real, um, uh, a real grouch. That he had a real downer on life. That ba- you know, his first, his first words and his basic summary of the whole thing is that you know, is uh, life is a bad deal, and that, um, that the the whole thing is is a is a bit of a sick joke, and that. Um, something has gone terribly wrong. But it's not that at all. What he's trying to do is like any kind of surgeon, any kind of uh, medical person. It's like before you do anything, someone's got to recognize that they're sick. Uh, and, that, and then you need to recognize what the sickness is. And then you can set about healing it. So uh, this is what he focused on. And he realized that there is this, this sickness that we experience. And that uh, there's a st- strong tendencies in us, in human beings, to deny to avoid, to, to, to neglect, and not to want to recognize what's going on. But it's until we actually um, notice that and acknowledge what the, what the sickness is, then we can't go beyond it. Now, the, um, then the, uh, the other um, aspects of this, then, uh, the, uh, he pointed out also then the origin of this sickness, the origin of dukkha, what, is, what causes dukkha, and um, the fact that it can be transcended, it can be, uh, it can be let go of, it can, we are able to live completely free from uh, that experience, 
that is possible. And then the final uh, part of the, the, the four truths, the, the fourth noble truth, is the way, the path, what is the medicine for it. Now each of the, the four noble truths, each, um, for each section of it, uh, as he describes it, there's a, an, a way of, of relating to that. So for the first one, for the, for the truth of, of Dukkha, he said, this has to be apprehended, this has to be understood. You have to, put, you have to acknowledge that, uh, that dukkha, that suffering, that discontentment is there. That's the first thing, that there has, the mind has to open itself. So normally we either um, take hold of our pain and our struggles and our difficulty and either we uh, wallow in it and make a big thing out of it and, and uh, pity ourselves or blame somebody else or blame ourselves or whatever. Or else we, we, try, we try to deny it and push it away and say, you know, I'm fine, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm, a, yeah, I'm, the, I'm the happiest man in the world. <laughs> I remember when, um, uh, when I first uh, arrived at the monastery in Thailand and um, I was very much a believer in the, in the, um, in the kind of happy-go-lucky philosophy of life and thought, um, you know, that uh, being free, white and 21 was, which I have which technically I was at the time, um, was, it was sufficient causes to be a, you know, a free being. And I was living in the tropics and wandering around and staying on different beaches and being, you know, having a, um, no, no destination, no place to go back to. I was uh, technically as free as could be. And uh, I very much like to think of myself as a, as a sort of cheerful and, and a happy person. And uh, then I got to the monastery and um, was asking one of the novices there, you know, because I didn't know a thing about Buddhism. And so I asked him, you know, what the, what the basic teachings of the Buddha were. And so he said, well, well, the Buddha said that, you know, life is suffering. And I said, he said, hey, everybody's suffering. And I said, I'm not. I'm not suffering. I don't suffer. I don't suffer at all. <laughs> and then you could just hear this tone in my voice saying, me? I don't suffer. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> and uh, and he kind of looked at me and said, "Well, <laughs> stick around here, and you might be in for a few surprises." <laughs> and so, because uh, my program, you know, the one that I like reading about myself or who I am, you know, is this sort of this happy fellow who drifts from beach to beach and and uh, and uh, who enjoys life incessantly. And when I actually um, stopped uh, trying to just sort of live by reiterating that. And, and reciting that to myself over and over and actually looked at the state of my mind, I realized I was anxious, insecure, neurotic, <laughs> uptight <laughs> and, uh, and uh, constantly trying to repair myself after having broken into a million pieces. Um, so uh, I began to realize there might be a bit of sense in this, in this Buddha fellow and what he was saying. And, uh, and then in that... Um, that uh, sense of, of apprehending or recognizing that, uh, the feeling, the quality of, of discontent or, or dissatisfaction. Not, not dramatizing it, not making a big thing out of it, not, not so you're not denying it, you're not denying it, you're not indulging it, but just saying, here it is. And it's also interesting the way that the Buddha phrased it. He didn't say, I am suffering or, or I, uh, I have this experience. He said the insight was, there is. Dukkha. So the whole thing is not conceived in terms of my problem, this is my disease or my problem, but just there is this. There is this experience. 
that it arises in the mind. There's no, he's not presuming an owner of it or, or anything of that nature. It's not a self-based quality at all, but it's just here. It's experienced, it's known. And we begin to realize that a lot of our problems in life come from the, the, the ten, tendency to, to own things. To, um, to, to instantly, when there is a feeling of dukkha, when we're feeling anxiety or pain or conflict or, or unrequited desire of some sort, that it's, it's my problem, it's my desire, it's my fear. But begin to, we begin to see through this kind of insight that actually that's additional to the reality of it. And the reality is that when it when it's first arises, there's no sense of self there, it's just a feeling. And then, and then the minus, the I-ness, the ownership of it comes after. That's, that's added on top. And this is, this is just for you to reflect on. Don't, don't have to take this as a, a gospel truth. But um, this was what the, the Buddha saw for himself. And, and when you begin to, to really look, this is the, uh, the way it pans out. And, and it was also the great relief of it. Because... Uh, then the, the second part of the insight is then, well, that this, this feeling of dukkha, this, this quality, should be understood, it should be known, it should be apprehended. And then the final, the third uh, aspect of the, the, that insight is then, yes, this has been understood, this has been apprehended, this is known. And, uh, and then the result of that insight then was, uh, to the Buddha was, was joy, was knowledge, was vision, was, was peacefulness, was, was light, uh, was uh, illumination. And, that, uh, and he also recognized that he had never heard this before, he'd never thought this before, but it just fell into to place in this form. And then he saw um, from that, when, when, uh, in considering that, the, that as the problem, then seeing the cause of it, what uh, arose in his mind was realizing that it was self-centered desire, self-based uh, desire, that was the, the cause of that dissatisfaction. Wanting, wanting to be with what you haven't got, wanting to get away from what you have got. Um, that uh, that sense of, of uh, restless, self-seeking desire, searching for fresh delight here and there, and then with one delight was, uh, is finished with, and the next one, and the next, and then the next. And so, in the most obvious way, based around sense desire, and sights, and sounds, and feelings, and so forth, but also around um, the desire to become something, the desire to um, achieve, or the desire to, uh, to attain a kind of just ambitiousness based around the sense of self. And... Um, and also, on the negative side of that, the desire to get rid of, the desire to annihilate, to get rid of that which is obstructive, that which is painful, to destroy um, your problems, to get rid of uh, your anger, to get rid of some person, that, uh, to get away from some person that you don't like, to get, to get away from some situation that is painful, that which is, is, that which is dismissive and destructive and pushing things away. That, um, it's by blindly reacting to those, uh, those urges, those impulses, uh, based around the sense of self, that is constantly bringing in its wake this feeling of, of discontent because um, you're, you're in a state of argument with reality. You're, you're always uh, colliding with the way that the world actually is, that you, 
you're, um, you're always having to be with that which is painful. You're always having to endure separation from that which is, that which is love, that which is beautiful. You're always having to be a, a little bit short of, of what you feel you can attain or, or what, you, what is your potential. Or you're always having to, um, to endure the presence of, of things that you'd, you'd rather not bother with. Because that's the way life is, that we're not in control of the universe. It's not, it's not, it does not obey our commands, as you might have noticed. It's not an obedient universe. <laughs> and so that, uh, the, the Buddha saw that this was the, 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 the cause of it. And that, um, and the, uh, that um, in seeing that cause, then he realized that 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 cause then had to be abandoned, had to be relinquished. That self-centered uh, desire had to, had to be dropped, let go of, abandoned, relinquished. That that was the, the, the manner of approach towards it. And then uh, in his own mind, again, he, he saw that, that that had been accomplished, that had been completed. And the, the third truth is that of, um, of uh, the cessation of dukkha, the ending of dukkha, that the mind can be completely free from that sense of anguish and fragmentation, alienation. Now, this doesn't mean to say that, uh, that this is a, a state of being where we feel no pain, where we never have any kind of, we never feel heat or cold, where we never feel hungry or uh, people always like us. It's not the kind of um, uh, Jehovah's Witness type heaven, where you, it's like you're li- sort of living in the, like a, uh, the cover of a chocolate box for eternity, where everything is nice, or a Walt Disney type world where everything is nice all day long, every day, and there's no, uh, no mosquitoes or <laughs> no diseases. Far, far different from that, it's, a, it's a, in the midst of all of the, the pleasures and pains of life, one is not struggling against it or trying to possess that which is not possessable or, or escape that which is unescapable but one is uh, at peace with the flow of, of experience in life. And that um, the, the, uh, the way that one approaches that, or, realize, or the, um, that insight that uh, the ending of, of dukkha is possible, is through, you know, re- through, the, through realization that some desire has come to an end. So that by the... Um, the complete relinquishment and abandoning of self-centered desire or, or fear or aversion of that nature, um, the, um, the remainderless fading of, those, of that uh, kind of passion of the mind, then, uh, which really means like, it's like letting things go to their completion, letting things live through their cycle. So when you feel a, a mood of, of anger, um, or, or pain when you're experiencing some kind of, uh, of illness or some kind of emotional struggle. Being able to have a mind which is open to it, that accepts it, that embraces it, that is, is there with it and you're not I- indulging it or berating yourself for feeling that way or, or justifying it, but it's just there. You're feeding that, that quality of, 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 say, anger. And then you, you feel its presence in your mind and you know it, you recognize it, you, you realize this is, an, say, an unwholesome quality and it's, it's uh, wise not to act on it. And then you see it through and it lives its life and you follow it through to its completion. 
and then it ends. Like all things in nature, everything arises and ceases. Everything that begins ends. And so that this uh, insight into the cessation of desire, the cessation of suffering, is like what one is seeing when one follows a thing through to its completion. Now normally uh, what happens is that we don't notice the, the peacefulness or the, the spaciousness of mind that comes, that, that is there when things come to an end. We don't notice the space within, um, say, within this room. You know, what we notice, say, is the sound of my voice or the people that are in this room or the, the hangings on the wall or the, the crucifix or whatever. But the, the space of this room is not, the most, it's not what grabs your attention. But it's there all the time. It was here before we came, it'll be here after we've gone. And in the same way, we don't notice the space of our mind. We notice the thoughts and feelings, we notice the pleasure and pain, the events of our day that happen within our mind. We don't notice the space of the mind, which is always there, behind, been, uh, uh, permeating, surrounding every experience um, that, it, that, that, that flows through our consciousness. But it's there, and when we follow something through to its end, when we, when we watch a, a thought end, or a mood end, or, a, or an event, any kind of event, if we pause and just notice, what we experience is, is profound peacefulness, the same knowledge, vision, light, illumination, calm and stillness that the, the Buddha described, that was, he realized himself when uh, uh, when he arrived at this insight. That same quality is, is there at the very uh, uh, core of our being. It's there uh, underlying every experience of mind that, uh, that we know. And it's not something like, like the space in this room. It doesn't leap out and grab you and say, way, here I am, you've made it, congratulations. <laughs> this is the real thing. This is, uh, it's not like a, the, the, the hole on the golf course with a flag in it, you know. <laughs> It's not, it hasn't got a big marker on it. It's almost invisible because you come through the door and you head for a cushion or you, 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 know, you, head for your, you go through the door, you head for your car or you're aiming for the next object. Your mind skips over the space and heads for the next thought or the next thing to be done. It even seeks the next problem to worry about. But if instead we just realize the ending of things, we actually take the trouble to notice, to pause. Then we, we begin to recognize the, the, the bliss of our own nature, the mind's own nature, which is not additional. It's not an, an, an experience tacked on to our life. It's actually the undercurrent of the whole thing. But we never notice it because we're so busy with all of the successes and failures and praise and criticism and, and uh, dealing with... Uh, uh, our dwellings and our, our food and our money and our, our ups and our downs, our relationships, which seem to be so real and so important and so, so valid, so much the, the primary thing, that we, know, we don't notice this uh, quiet um, undercurrent, underpinning to the whole of our reality. We're so busy doing, we don't notice what we are. Now, the, um, the fourth truth then is, uh, is basically the, the means whereby you get from the second to the third. So actually, the, you can rearrange them in some ways. And that uh, the, uh, the core, you can have the, 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 um, the main problem is, 
it's caused by self-centered desire, so that's like the second truth. And then the, the aim is to arrive at the third, where the, uh, the, um, the anguish is, is absent, and one is able to experience and know life in its purity. Yeah. But the, the method of getting from two to three, that's the whole trick. That's, the, that's where the whole business of the, the Buddha's teaching lies. And that's really where, for, um, uh, for all of us, the, the work of uh, Buddhist practice lies. Because obviously, this, this whole business takes a lot of effort to do. There's no, there's no doubt about that. And um, so the fourth, uh, the fourth truth then describes the path. And in the part is an interesting thing that I discovered a little while ago that the word that the Buddha used for the path or the the um, the way of uh, of living is magga, magga. Now the word magga uh, comes from a, the, a root word um, which is the, refers to the the uh, the trail that an animal leaves, like footprints, the footprints of an animal. So it's like be the, the trail that a hunter follows or a, a shepherd would follow of, of, uh, of their sheep. And so that uh, when, sometimes when, this is, when the path is talked about, it's sort of referred to as if it was some kind of great freeway that, with big signs all over it saying, you know, Nibbana this way, you know, 183 miles. Um, you know, Dunkin' Donuts on your left. And... Uh, and it's all sort of laid out and very neat and big white lines and you just kind of hop on this thing and you go and you can close your eyes and just sort of put your, your you know, fix the, uh, the accelerator on the, on the car and just uh, doze at the wheel and the, the thing will carry you. But it's not like that at all. The, 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 I think the Buddha chose his words very, very carefully and that um, this word magga uh, is very much uh, the experience of trying to follow the, the path to to uh, the realization of truth. It's a really tricky business. It's like following a trail. You know, where if, the, if the trail is not well beaten um, and not well used, then it's really hard to see where, where the, the, the beast has been. So there's only looking a little footprint here and a, a bit of, of hair caught in a tree bark there. And it's, there's not a lot of signs as to which way we should go, how we should con- guide ourselves through our life. It's, uh, it's a tricky business, and there's many, many, many ways that we can lose the trail and wander off sideways and be convinced that we're, we're um, doing the right thing and heading in the right direction. Just because we're working hard, you know, we're putting a lot of effort into it. But uh, I, I came across a, an old uh, a Native American uh, saying, which goes, um, no matter how far you've gone down the wrong trail, when you find out, turn back. <laughs> don't think that you're wasting your investment. That, uh, don't be, don't be uh, embarrassed. Just turn around and go back. <laughs> it was very good advice. Because there's something in us that says, well, look, I've made all this effort. I mean, I must be able to get something out of it. But wisdom says, <clears throat> no, <laughs> turn around. You know, swallow your pride and go back and begin again. Because the path is, is, not, is not broad and, and clear. It's, it's a tricky and nebulous business. And it's very easy for us to, to drift and to wander and miss the point and feel that we're doing the right thing but to actually have, have uh, taken a wrong turn way back. 
and the uh, the essential elements of the path. However, um, you know, despite its, its difficulty, you know, the, the Buddha pointed out as, again as being very simple, straightforward things. To um, they're divided up into eight in a traditional form, but you can also break them. You can kind of you can group them together into three fundamental groups, which are uh, of virtue uh, or morality, um, uh, mental training, uh, concentration, and, and mind training. Um, samadhi or training of the heart and wisdom panya and uh, these uh, these three uh, are the, like the essential groups and and uh, or even the eightfold path uh, they're described um, as uh, right understanding right uh, intention right um, right speech right action right livelihood right effort right mindfulness right concentration so they're actually grouped together with wisdom first, and then morality, and then and then uh, mental training uh, uh, towards the end. But these are not arranged in a sequential order. They're not like you know, first you do A, then you do B, then you do C. One, two, three. And <laughs> this is lesson one. This is lesson two. Like like life itself, it's it's all mingled in together. All the different aspects of the path are, are mingled in with each other. They're interdependent with each other. And that uh, they all they all work with each other. They they depend upon each other. They they're empowered and embellished by each other. So there's no one element which is more important or crucial than the other. Um, and in some ways, you can uh, you can regard them as uh, like the the practice of uh, of virtue as like um, being careful with your speech and your actions. This is uh, to do with the whole body the way you relate with the world, the way you relate with other people, the way you conduct yourself in the world. And then the, uh, the, um, the aspect on, the, on, tra- on uh, samadhi is very much like the, the training of the heart, putting forth the right effort to, um, to produce wholesome states of mind, to bring forth that which is brightening and gladdening and wholesome, to sustain that in being, to, to learn how to let go of that which is unwholesome, to um, to not give rise to that which is hurtful or painful to yourself or others, or which is uh, unwholesome in its nature, and to um, to guide your efforts in that way, to develop concentration of mind, to develop mindfulness, a, a whole alertness of being, having your your mind being able to be attentive and aware. And then the, the wisdom functions of, of um, a right understanding and right uh, intention or, or, or thought, these are, these are more of the, the brain qualities. Um, but these are all, uh, uh, these are different ways that you can relate to these different aspects of the path, but they're, they're all interrelated, interwoven with each other. And that um, we, in order to, to live carefully and to live in a, in a wholesome and sensitive way, then you need to have some wisdom. But in order to, to have, uh, develop a calm mind, you must also live in a sensitive and, and careful way. You know, if, you're, if you're behaving in a way which is causing a lot of remorse and, and turbulence in your world, then you'll never be able to develop any real kind of concentration. If you have no concentration, then you really won't really be able to develop wisdom. So, all these things we, uh, that uh, when we're talking about developing the path, you're, you're really just, in a way, getting an idea, getting a sense, getting a feeling for these different aspects, and then slowly bringing them all into being, and then slowly they, they facilitate each other.
And this is why we use a, uh, for the fourth truth, the quality that one relates to them with is that of, of cultivation, of development, that the, um, the, the path needs to be uh, pursued, it needs to be developed, it needs to be cultivated. And, um, and again, the Buddha talked about it in this way, that, um, that uh, uh, he, uh, he saw that the path needed to be developed and that uh, in himself, that the, the path was, was indeed fully developed, it was, it was complete, that, that that insight was complete. And that he too, had, uh, he had never thought about it in this way before, he'd never <coughs> experienced it in this way before, but he realized that this is the, the whole of the teaching, in a way, this is the essence of every spiritual every spiritual path. And so what you find is that regardless of the, the religious symbolism that is used, whether one talks in theistic terms or non-theistic terms, whether you use um, um, one kind of language or another, that if there are these elements of, of virtue, of concentration, of wisdom, then if those are developed and pursued in the right way, then that will inevitably bring about the, the liberation of the heart, the, the freedom of the heart and, and uh, enlightenment, um, sooner or later. But if a, a religious path does not, or a path in life does not contain those elements, or there's some aspect that's, that's lacking or missing, then it cannot possibly um, bring you to that uh, complete freedom or complete realization of truth. And that this was what he... Uh, he saw, so that uh, in a way that even though we call these teachings Buddhist, certainly the Buddha didn't claim a monopoly on them, but saw that this is the very essence, the very um, kernel of, of spirituality itself, the very kernel of human, human life, our human being, is these, is these qualities. And, and he saw that, y yes, it's possible for all of us to develop these. And yes, it takes work. You know, you can't uh, expect just to to hear this or to, to magically some, somehow receive something from someone else and be um, kind of switched into a, a blissful state uh, permanently where you'll never feel any kind of problems or difficulty ever again. You know, there, it takes effort, it takes work, it takes application, it takes diligence. Like, uh, it, um, you know, if, you are, uh, if you're going to um, aspire to be free, then one, one has to recognize that, uh, that it, uh, it, there's a certain um, dues to pay. Like you shouldn't, uh, as they say, you shouldn't call the doctor if you can't afford the bill. That uh, your, um, your due uh, uh, effort is, uh, is required. But in, in, a, in a similar way, that that's not seen as anything that's unfortunate or obstructive or, or um, a poverty in life but actually something that one can enjoy and is, uh, is actually what our human life is all about. That even though we give ourselves to different occupations and different livelihoods and we, we learn to live in, in different ways and do different things, that you know, it's, it's essentially it's this uh, spiritual transformation which is the very core of our, of our life and, and what we are and what we're doing. And that um, the, uh, the daily activities that we follow are kind of supportive of that and supplementary to that and if what we can use the fabric of our, of our daily life to bring about this kind of transformation then uh, indeed we'll, we'll experience the same the same happiness, the same freedom and same fulfillment as uh, every en enlightened being 
everyone like uh, like a Buddha or whatever enlightened beings there have been, they have done. So I'll uh, leave that for you to, to, to contemplate for the evening. Um, as I was saying at the beginning, these, um, or uh, even if I didn't say it, maybe I should have done, that uh, all the teachings are always offered in the spirit of uh, being uh, here for people just to consider. These are not, things are not said for, for people that are being expected to believe uh, um, or to, uh, to agree with or disagree with, but uh, I encourage people just to, to hear what is said, to take it in, and then to... Uh, to see if there's anything useful in it. If it, if it makes sense, then that, that's all well and good. And uh, if it doesn't make sense, or if, it, if you feel that it's wrong, then please um, leave it behind. But, uh, I'll take care of it. <laughs> so, I'll leave that with you for this evening. If people would like to uh, uh, stay for a bit and ask any questions or have a discussion, then that's... Uh, uh, most welcome to for a little while. Your samadhi is a very broad term. Um, samatha is probably what you're, you're thinking. Samatha means calm or tranquility. And it's usually samatha and vipassana, which are twinned as, as two, um, kind of two halves of the same process. So samatha is not the Pali or samadhi? No, they're different things. Okay. Samatha just means tranquility or, or calm. And... Um, Samadhi is a much broader term. It just means like, um, in fact, it means, technically it means like um, correct or perfect holding. Like just hold, the, the, it has this attribute of like holding things, holding the mind. So it's really just essentially being with things. Being, the mind being with the way things are, kind of actually just settled on the moment. Samatha means specifically tranquility or, or calmness. And when people who are into more of the yoga traditions use samadhi to refer to bliss, mm. um, how is that? Well, there, it's a different usage of the same word. I mean, they, they often use samadhi as like, being the goal of the spiritual life. Yeah. Like, um, as, a, as synonymous as, say, in Buddhist terminology, you'd use nirvana, or realize, realizing nibbana. So they, they use the word samadhi to refer to that. So you, it's all, it, these terms get used very differently by, very, by different people, so you have to... Right, that's what I've tried. <laughs> so the way you're using samadhi is that sense of like holding, embracing, um, taking the 
Well, it, that's, that's the kind of connotations that the word has. I mean, usually it's, it's translated as concentration, but that's a bit too narrow a meaning, really. And it's, it, it's es essentially, it just means the mind's ability to hold an object or, or a, a multitude of objects. But that's it's essentially what it means. They say you, uh, it takes one to know one. Well, I think anyone recognizes it. It's, it's very, it's very hard to uh, um, really be sure of somebody else's spiritual state. And and in the Buddhist tradition, when someone asked the Buddha about this, there was a Actually, the, the Buddha was sitting on the veranda of the monastery with, this, with uh, his friend, King Pasenadi. He was the king of, of uh, Kosala, I think. And anyway, the King Pasenadi had come to visit him, and they were sitting on the veranda of the Buddha's hut, and, and, they were, and there was this pathway outside the front of the monastery nearby. And all these, this whole gang of, of yogis and other characters were walking past. And... and um, King Pasenadi kind of kept getting up and sort of saluting them and being, uh, paying his respects to them. And, and then uh, after this whole stream of people had gone by, then he sits back down and says to the Buddha, um, you know, it's really marvelous, all these you know, wise and saintly beings um, living in this area. And, you know, I try to support holy people as much as I can. He says, but, but how actually do you know which, one, which of these characters are real charlatans and total idiots, and which ones are the enlightened? Because they all look the same. You know, uh, so how do you know which one's which? And the Buddha said, well, you have to live close to someone for a long time to really know. You have to be close to them, and you have to live with them for a long time to really know. He says, you can't, you can't tell from the outside. Um, usually by the, a person's behavior, you can have some idea. But even if their behavior is, is impeccable, it's still to actually really know where someone is at. And, uh, and whenever uh, people would ask our teacher in Thailand, Ajahn Chah, this question, you know, he would give the same kind, of, same kind of answer. He'd say, you know, people have all kinds of ideas of what an enlightened being would look like and what sort of powers they would have. And, you know, they walk a quarter of an inch above the ground. And, and he said, uh, actually, an enlightened person is the most normal human being of all. <laughs> so normal, it's impossible to see that they're any different from anybody else. So it's, in a way, it's far more important to understand what you mean by enlightenment yourself. And because uh, it, it, it's like, otherwise it becomes just a sort of a strange commodity that you ascribe to other people. Like, you know, is this person, you know, are they, do they belong to the Rotary Club or not? You know, or are, <laughs> are they a Republican or a Democrat? You know, are they enlightened or are they not? You know, it's just, it becomes another label. And so that you don't, if you don't really know the essence of what that is referring to, you're kind of missing the point and just thinking, ooh, he's enlightened, ooh, marvelous. But it's like, you know, you're not quite sure what that really means or what that is. And so um, usually the encouragement would be to more work on, on uh, 
understanding what, you, what one means by the term enlightenment and, and uh, developing more of that quality yourself. And then, and then, naturally, the more you develop that in yourself, you'll, the more you'll be able to recognize that in other people. I mean, sometimes a person can have a tremendous charisma and have a very strong effect on others. You know, that just being around that person, you know, people feel really blissed out or uh, strange experiences, start having visions or strange experiences. And, and many uh, uh, people have really suffered a great deal because of being entranced by that kind of thing and, and reading into it that some person is a, is a, a totally enlightened and, and uh, golden-hearted guru. And in fact, the person just has developed a lot of psychic powers or has a tremendous charisma. And so these strange psychic effects happen around them. But actually, they've still got a lot of unfinished business. And that, uh, on a number of occasions, that, that, that's happened. And many people have been hurt because of that. So, uh, like, I remember one person saying that, uh, w describing an incident when he went to visit a, a very famous guru in India. And um, he went to see this, this fellow. And he, and he said it was, it was like being near a, 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 um, a power station. You know, you could just, he said, certainly this fellow was, was, was packing a lot of juice, but there was uh, something very creepy and, uh, and unwholesome about the person as well. But he was incredibly impressive. He could speak um, uh, in a non-stop, eloquent stream for a couple of hours on any subject you like. Um, and he had this tremendous kind of aura and presence. But yet, it, it turned out later that the guy was a total charlatan. You know, he was a real rogue. Mm -hmm. And, um, which, you know, some people didn't mind, but 